Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the pod, Wild Connection, the podcast. You know, last week, something that came up was how we have become disenchanted with nature. And through that disenchantment, we have become disconnected. In the past, there were myths and folk tales about creatures that filled us with awe and sometimes fear. Creatures that reflected our relationships with nature. You know, I have a love affair with Iceland and Icelandic sagas and folk tales are rich with mythical creatures. Sometimes these legends were revised, as in the case of whales. Stories of sea monsters have played a role in Icelandic folk culture for centuries. Until the 1600s, belief in sea monsters was pervasive. But then a naturalist, Jan Guthmundsen, who was fascinated with whales, compiled the natural history of Iceland in the mid-1600s. Because he was drawn to foreigners, who at that time were largely Basque whalers, he came to understand many things about whales. First, that they were what people at that time often thought were sea monsters. And second, that they weren't sea monsters at all. He lived in an area frequented by whales, so he was able to observe them, and most importantly, he drew them. And it was these drawings that really started to shift the perspective My guest this week is all about the Enchanted. Today, I'm talking to author and veterinarian Tim Otterson, who has an interest, also a lifelong interest, in wildlife conservation. He's on today to tell us about his new book, All Creatures Weird and Dangerous. It's an autobiography of sorts that brings to life some of the animals that have remained in the shadows as legends and myths. He also talks about the history of those legends and myths. Our conversation goes deeper than that, though, and reminds us that our past was far more enchanted and connected than our present. And he invites you to change that. All right, let's get to it. Hey, everybody, welcome back. And I am so excited to bring on my guest this week, Dr. Tim Otterson, DVM, veterinarian and author of a new book called All Creatures Weird and Dangerous. Welcome. No, thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have you. And we have a mutual friend, um, someone that has been on the show, Dr. Marty Edwards. And so I'm I'm really uh, fascinated when I meet veterinarians finding out, because I was going to be a veterinarian and that did not happen for a variety of of uninteresting reasons, but, um, you know, so I'm always fascinated with veterinarians and their path. And so 
So can you share, before we start talking about your book, can you share a little bit about what led you to want to be a veterinarian? Yeah, I, you know, I had a very circuitous path to, to becoming a veterinarian. I, I didn't finish vet school until I was 30. Um, I've, I've always loved science. I've always loved animals. Um, and when I was about 17, I decided I would get an engineering degree. Uh, I was living in North Louisiana at the time. So I went to Louisiana Tech University, which is a really good engineering school. Uh, I had thoughts that I was going to become maybe an aerospace engineer. One of my mentors worked for NASA. So I thought that would be really neat. Um, and uh, in the middle of my senior year, I realized that I, I wanted to be more of a, a pure scientist. I wanted to study physics and mathematics more than I wanted to work on projects and uh, you know that sort of engineering sort of work. So uh, by chance, I learned that there was an opening at the uh, university in St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland. And, uh, and so I took it and uh, I went there uh, I lived there for three years and I studied ocean physics in the physics department there, which was a fabulous experience on a variety of levels um, in a really great education, a wonderful city, uh, you know, beautiful province to live in. Um, and, and during that period, I realized that my allergies to cats had faded um, and veterinary medicine had never been a possibility for me. Uh, and so I decided that I would pursue it. And I came back to Louisiana. I started working at a practice, uh, taking classes so I could apply to vet school. Uh, one thing led to another, and I got admitted into the vet school in Baton Rouge at LSU. So that's kind of my circuitous way. I mean, as, as I said, I've always loved science. Uh, I've always loved animals, and uh, eventually they kind of came together. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting that you mentioned that your cat allergies faded because uh, they also faded for me. And I realized that doesn't happen for everyone. And, and now you run a, a feline only um, clinic. I do. Yeah, I work <laughs> at an all feline practice in, uh, in Buffalo, New York. We've been here for 40 years, uh, Summer Street Cat Clinic. So yeah, so I, and I've been here 23 years. Um, I did go through some allergy desensitization shots a while ago, just to okay. make sure I could breathe a little bit better. Um, but yeah, I spend pretty much 24 hours a day with a cat. Uh, when I'm at work, there's cats. When I come home, there's cats. I, I live with a lot of cat allergens, but I, I, I do just fine. Well, it's interesting because um, for years I was, and uh, even to tigers. So it turns out that, you know, when a tiger licked me, <laughs> which is a story in and of itself, it, it itched. I started itching where it licked me from its saliva. And, um, but I somehow, um, I don't know, maybe just through, uh, being exposed uh, for long enough, uh, it faded, and and now it's super rare for me to have a reaction to a cat. It might be cat dependent, you know. I'm, one cat might make me sneeze a little bit, but uh, for the most part, uh, I seem to have overcome allergies to domestic and wild cats alike. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and the saliva's the saliva's allergenic, so I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. I just, uh, I didn't expect that's one of the that theories. to happen. Okay. I didn't expect that's one, of the theories. Yeah. one to be licked by a tiger and <laughs> two to itch as a result. Nice. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, so, so what I love about your book, All Creatures Weird and Dangerous, uh, is that you really blend your, it's a blend of, <laughs> of your memoir. So real experiences um, and 
uh, maybe they're all real experiences. I, I don't know. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the book? Yeah, so it, it's a memoir about my life caring for creatures. Um, and there's a mix of everything in there. There, you know, there's a, a lot about being a veterinarian and the day-to-day of it, you know, caring for people's cats and and what you know most of my colleagues experience and the, the ups and downs of it. Um, but you know, periodically throughout the book, I'm put in a position where I have to care for some pretty odd creatures. Um, uh, you know, I met uh, Dr. Went, Marty, um, at LSU. We both worked in the Wildlife Rehab Center there. Uh, and LSU has a really nice wildlife clinic, and it was a great place to get exposure as a student. And we would rehab, you know, barred owls and little birds. And eventually we ended up with a bald eagles because the population was was coming back. So, so a lot of this book is almost like being a wildlife rehabber, um, but you know, not for the barred owls and the pelicans and that sort of thing. Uh, but the first chapter starts off with the chupacabra that I just uh, happened to be brought by um, a young girl in a fishing village in uh, Puerto Rico. So I'm on vacation, having a good time, you know, enjoying Puerto Rico, which is a lovely place. Uh, and some little girl you know, instead of bringing me a little robin that has, you know, knocked itself unconscious uh, on her, you know, window, uh, she brings me this mythical, terrifying, you know, creature. And what, okay, so for those of us that don't know, what is a chupacabra? Yeah, so the the chupacabras have been described throughout the Caribbean and and Central and South America for a long time. You know, most of the mythical creatures have a have a much longer history than than, you know, we think of in in popular culture. Um, But uh, back in the 90s, a a creature was described was described as injuring livestock in Puerto Rico. And if you go and Google it, there's this explosion of stories of, you know, bleeding cattle and dead cattle uh, throughout the island. And so the, the name, unfortunately, Chupacabra means goat sucker. Um, and it was, you know, unfortunate. Um, but then, but then, it, you know, it kind of grew into this myth um, of this, of this, of this dangerous creature. And, and some of them that are sketched out, they look like the creature from the Black Lagoon and other ones look like little diseased chihuahuas. Um, yeah, but the, the one I describe in my book is a, is a reptilian creature. Uh, with wings um, and and a predator, you know, n- nice nice pointy teeth, uh, scales, powerful legs, you know, the kind of creature that would you know feed on like you know shorebirds and that sort of thing. Right now, was it injured? Why did the little girl bring it to you? And, and yeah, what were you so, able to do? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, the, the book starts directly in on that story, uh, which I started as a short story and then it evolved into the book where we had a. Um, uh, we were just out hanging, hanging out, drinking mojitos, you know, on the patio, enjoying a beautiful night in Puerto Rico. Uh, when this this girl who had met my son the previous day at at uh, like a, a cultural exchange, um, we were there with a whole a lot of kids and family for for the school. Um, brings me this creature that she found laying unconscious on her patio, and uh, you know the premise is that the bird, the bird, uh, the chupacabra had flown into her window. And knocked itself unconscious, like a lot of birds do. I mean, windows windows probably kill more birds in our society than maybe maybe anything else. Um, you know, the birds fly into windows all the time. So, uh, and they knock themselves cold. So, you know, in, in the past, I've taken little robins that have flown into windows at my own home and put them in a cardboard box, let them get over the concussion, and let them go. Right. And not to ruin the surprise, that's what happens with the chupacabra. 
Okay. Well, and some don't survive, right? So this little yeah. this chupacabra was very lucky. So right. I mean, in in Tucson, Arizona, where where I am, what happens is a lot of the uh, Cooper's hawks are chasing their meal, which is another bird, right. and they both slam into windows, and that's wow. a great source of mortality for Cooper's hawks. Um, and so, so, you know, there are things that people can do, right? So the, the reason that birds do this is not because they're stupid. <laughs> um, right. it's, it's because the their vision, they see an ultraviolet. And when they're looking at a window, if you, if you actually see this from sunlight hitting the windows, you'll see the reflection of trees in the window. So from the bird's perspective, the forest is just continuing. The sky is just continuing. Right. And um, of course, they don't have a concept of window. <laughs> so um, what can people do to help stop, whether it's a chupacabra or a robin, from slamming into their window? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of a joke. I, I, I make that statement similar in the book and I make a joke out of it. Uh, because if you go to bird stores, you can buy little stick-on emblems, you know, that have the silhouette of a bird. So if you do that, then maybe it breaks up the the image and the bird doesn't think it's a breezeway. It, you know, yeah. yeah. So that's that's what you should do. Yeah. I also, in my case, I opted for the first time a bird hit my window. <laughs> I opted for paper shades to close, oh. to cover the windows um, most of the way so that they realized uh, it was not actually, um, you know, somewhere to go through. So, so that was what right. I chose to do in a pinch. Um, sure. I want to move on to some of your time because you brought up mythology and some of these creatures and, and, and there's a lot of them in your book that are related to things some people might've heard of. So I want to talk a little bit more about your time in Newfoundland because you were also involved in rescuing uh, whales. So Right. So it was not a pothead whale, I think is what you, yeah. know, which is also yeah. as a pilot whale. And fin, yeah. Finback. Yeah. Yeah. Finback so how pilot did you get whale, involved yeah. in that? And then where did that lead you? So in, in, um, in Newfoundland at the physics department, I was really fortunate to meet a lot of people. Um, this was, um, I went there in 1989. Um, the, um, the, the department, was was really uh, multidisciplinary at that point. Uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of um, the, the fisheries uh, were in decline. Uh, they only got they've only gotten worse since then. So the, the state, or the the state and the the provincial and the federal government were putting lots of money into it. So so I was fortunate to um, have access to their um, ocean ocean science center and a lot of people that were doing biological oceanography, chemical oceanography, you know, geological. Uh, you know, computer modeling and all that. So, so yeah, fortunately, I, I, you know, my, my friend who lived in um, Flat Rock, where I just describe it's a little lovely town, about half an hour north of um, uh, Newfoundland, uh, loved the fishing community that he lived in. So he was really well connected in, in that. And, and whale rescues like that happen a lot. I mean, fishing gear is dangerous. So, you know, it's, it's it, you know, and, and you know, and it gets lost, you know, it gets disconnected, it floats away, um, it, it kills a lot of creatures, you know, the, the right whale, I mean, they think that the, you know, a large part of right whale um, infertility is that they spend so much time dragging fishing equipment around, 
that they happen to get hooked in, that they never get fat enough to have babies. That's one of the theories of it. So, so yeah, I was, I was fortunate to meet a lot of interesting people there, St. John's. And, you know, whales actually have a history of being thought of as sea monsters. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and, sure. And so sea monsters are this really kind of common mythological creature. And somehow as people moved, the sea monsters moved with them. And yeah. I just um, finished a, a course on Iceland, um, or teaching mm. a course on Iceland. And uh, there was a you know naturalist and philosopher who um, started documenting that these were actually whales and not sea monsters. His drawings were sort of the first um, drawings uh, at, at this time. It was probably in the 1600s uh, in right. Iceland. Uh, yeah, and he, he published yeah. a whole book on the whales that he um, was seeing and started to shift them away from being sea monsters to actual what we now know are whales. Well, I mean, part of the the mythology of the Kraken is related to what they saw when they were hunting sperm whales, right? So you, you hunt, you catch a sperm whale and you bring it up and there's all these terrible scars on its face, right? Um, and then you find beaks and, and tentacles and all sorts of parts of the giant squid associated with the Kraken, with the, the, um, the, the whale. And it's not hard to, it's not a very big step to just make up a good story that yeah. like, you know, and then that there's these horrible creatures out there. I mean, the Kraken in Norse mythology is like the size of an island. Um, but, you know, one, one of the, you know, and I spent a fair bit of time at sea sailing and doing research and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and it's creepy being out on a boat in the middle of the ocean at two o'clock in the morning. And, and, and sometimes people disappeared, right? In, in those little boats, they fall overboard and it, you know and and they would make up stories and sometimes this must have happened of a of a of a you know giant squid like reaching up and grabbing somebody and pulling them overboard so you yeah. can see how this would be a continuum oh absolutely i mean you know that's what we've done right everything that we do even now science is a story right it's telling a story about something and then it's a question of is that story accurate or does it need refinement? And so, right. right? So to me, sea monster stories, they had at that time that level of accuracy um, to try to explain something that was seemingly unexplainable. And this is also something that's a feature <clears throat> in your book. And I want to turn to your time. Um, you grew up in lots of different places. And yeah. this exposed you to a lot of nature and a lot of wildlife. Right. And you have a brother and, and you guys would go out in nature all the time. Right. So, yeah, I was, I mean, I'm fortunate to have a really interesting family. Um, you know, I had a, a parents that wanted to take us camping and, and traveling. Um, I was born in Okinawa on an army base there. My, my father uh, was drafted into the Korean War. Um, he was a, a gynecologist, um, and um, he got drafted and sent to uh, um, Korea and loved it. It just loved the army and loved the travel. And this, um, you know, this rural kid from Wisconsin, you know, got to go to Seoul, Korea, and Tokyo, and Honolulu, and 
it lit a fire in him. And, you know, we, he joined the army and he took his young family all over the world. I mean, we were, I was born in Okinawa. Uh, we lived in C near Seattle. Uh, I grew up in South Texas and West Texas and eventually Louisiana. So, so yeah, the, the, the spirit of, you know, exploring and science and bettering yourself, you know, it, it comes from my, it, it clearly comes from my father. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have a, a, a very, a very um, caring brother who is mischievous. You know, he wanted, he likes to sneak around in the woods and and have a good time and, you know, look, look for things. So um, I, I'd be happy to read a passage from the book that kind of illustrates that. I would love that. Yes. Okay. So I'll, I'll read, it's, it's a few minutes here. Um, this is just after we moved to, um, to Louisiana from Texas. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, bought property on, on Cross Lake, which is this lake on the far end of, of Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, and behind it was an abandoned farm, uh, which was several hundred acres with lakes and trees and, and, um, and creatures. So, so my brother and I kind of lost our minds um, enjoying this. And so we, we, uh, I'll, read from, um, I'll, read, I'll read a couple paragraphs from that. Um, uh, we loved walking in the woods at night and did it almost every evening. It was especially good when the moon was out. We love those woods and all the exotic creatures and would wander around trying to triangulate where the owls were roosting based on their calls. We'd bring flashlights, but not because we needed them. We knew every trail and twist in the woods. We'd use them to light up the eyes of the animals we came across. The best part of the game was trying to figure out if it was a deer or a fox or a raccoon. The coolest eyes we found were the alligators floating in the lake. It was almost prehistoric. The woods could get a little spooky sometimes knowing that there were snakes and alligators all over. We just never knew what we would run into at night. One time, one of the neighboring fences must have come down and a creature ventured in to graze upon all the fresh pasture. We saw him a good ways off one night. It scared the hell out of us. We kept our distance, studying him, trying to figure out what this enormous four-legged, slow-moving creature in the tall grass was. We snuck closer. He did not seem to be intimidated by us. And then, ever so slowly, he raised his big bovine head. Pretty cool. We did not expect to find a cow in our woods. The following night, we were making our rounds again. We had not been to the greenhouse in a couple of days and, our ma and made our way there with purpose to check our crops. We planted all sorts of vegetables in an abandoned greenhouse. Uh, my brother is, is a phenomenal gardener to this day. We always walked quietly and listened. As we approached the greenhouse, we heard a crash. That damn cow had found our secret garden. You can imagine what a 1,200 pound cow can do to a garden. We were pissed, but also a little afraid. Most cows are generally docile, but some breeds are a little nuts. My brother knew this from his time on the horse farm. We were going to scare this cow but we were going to do it carefully. We made our plans. Brad, my brother, was in charge. I was going to follow his lead. I felt like I was preparing for combat duty. We just watched the first Terminator movie together the night before. We were going to be cow commandos. Thinking it was a cow was reasonable. We were so wrong. My brother and I stealthily approached our violated greenhouse. Our anticipation was huge. You could hear the creature moving around inside and hear the chomping. I can still hear the crunching sounds to this day. As we approached the dirty glass and struggled to look through, we could see a large shape inside. My brother gave a cool hand signal. 
as if he were a platoon leader. And we, and we silently shifted over a couple of steps to look through a broken pane. As we stared in, my first instinct was to run. And I would have if not for my brother holding me back. Squatting in our rich soil was an enormous hairy primate chowing down on our carrots. He was pulling out entire clusters by the greens, shaking off the dirt and munching them casually. I was a pretty confident nature boy at this point. Snakes, alligators, tarantulas, horses, snapping turtles, they were all just part of my world. I had seen a lot in my brief life and had good composure when interacting with strange and scary animals. When I was 10, I once got to wrestle a tiger cub at the El Paso Zoo where my mother was a docent, but nothing prepares you for standing 20 feet from Bigfoot. I'll leave it there. Yeah, Bigfoot. Now, this creature has been contentious for, I don't know, for how long, right? You've got people always hunting Bigfoot. Sasquatch also goes by that name, maybe geographically, yeah. depends on where you are. Yeah. So, and so you saw one. What, what did you do after you saw it? Or are we going to leave that for readers? I mean, um, he, he left us alone. Um, you know, I, I don't think they're carnivores. Um, he was actually pretty chill about it. And he just kind of turned around and walked out of the greenhouse. Um, and my brother and I ran walk all the way home and locked the door. <laughs> so, yeah. Have you ever seen one a second time? No, I have not. Um, the, the, the story, this chapter starts out because uh, one of my friends had a um, Sasquatch sighting on his horse farm in suburban Buffalo. So, okay. uh, so that's, so um, and th and this uh, his friend uh, my friend actually took pictures of this creature and put them up on a website and uh, people went kind of bonkers about it and started trespassing on his territory. He got all these cryptozoologists, you know, coming in, cutting fences, night vision goggles, you know, camping out halfway on his property. Uh, it caused a real ruckus. So that was the the genesis of telling this story was uh, you know having this conversation with my friend about what happened to him. Well, I know that um, I have a, a school, high school friend, I guess uh, that I, you know, uh, that I haven't I haven't seen in years and years. And when he found out I study animal behavior, he he messaged me and said, "I need you to come to the woods of Florida and help me find Sasquatch." Excellent. And so yeah, so there are teams of people always at. Why do you think it's been so hard and so rare for people to to see them? Yeah, you know. Um... I mean, people find evidence of them all the time. They find the footprints. Uh, you know, there's the famous Patterson movie, uh, that film. I mean, there, there's there's evidence of 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 them. Um, they must be pretty rare. I, I was having dinner at a restaurant in in Dallas um, with my mother uh, a couple months ago, and a, a man from Nepal who was the server at this Indian restaurant wanted to talk to me. I had a shirt on that says like gone gone squatching right like gone fishing um and he was utterly fascinated by this and wanted to tell me about his time in nepal and that he had you know that he and his family had seen the yeti there and you, you know so it, it's not it there you know there's stories of these they're called the the genus is called gigantopithecus you know and um yeah there, there's stories of them all over the world you know from mm -hmm. australia to you know, to the to the northwest of here, you know, it captivates people. 
Um, you know, one of the things I like to discuss with people is that the, the world is very mobile as far as how it's developing. You know, when you tell people, you know, that there, you know, that there were 300 pound beaver living here, you know, 20,000 years ago, it, it blows people's minds. They, we're so stuck. We're so stuck in what the four walls that we see and the places that we inhabit that we don't, you know, and then you, you go to a science museum and you see images, you see the, the skeletons of a saber-toothed tiger, like those were here. Right. Like it's, yeah. it's not that big of a stretch to think that there were primates, enormous primates out with the woolly mammoths and the, you know, and the coelacanths and, you know, all, the, all the stuff out there. There were giants. Yeah. Everybody, you know, likes the two-toed, three-toed sloths of today, but there were giant sloths that stood, I don't know how mm -hmm. tall, but a lot of um, the Pleistocene era types of um, animals that are extinct, because them are still here, um, were, were enormous. Right. And the birds, right? I mean, we think a condor is big, um, but, you know, there's... there's um, historical records of, of birds that lived in North and South America that had a wingspan of like 30 feet. Right. And, and I, and I write about them in, in the book. So, you know, if you're, and they were around up until like 10, 20,000 years ago. So, so is it that far of a stretch to, uh, for like say Native American tribes to discuss, you know, these enormous thunderbirds, you know, like right. it, it makes sense. And, and, you know, and I love American uh, Native American literature and origin stories and their connection to the world around them. It, it's it's so much more um, evolved than than the you know than the 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 American version of how we interact with the world. You probably even know more about this with your with your behaviorist background. Um, but like you know, writing about these strange birds, you know, they were here. They were here. You know. Well, and the other thing that I appreciate is that, you know, historically and in, and, and in many still in indigenous populations, humans embodied the characteristics of many of these animals and could or could become them, transform into them. Yeah. Um, the Fantastic. Wolves is tied to humans in, in Norse, Norse mythology. And so right. I feel like um, this is part of what I'm always also promoting is like we are connected, right? Uh, and we've always believed that we were. It's not anthropomorphizing animals. We're zoomorphizing people. Uh, <laughs> we are right. animals and we have many of the same characteristics and traits and as other species. And, and that I think that historically there was less separation between us and others um, Absolutely. Sort of constructed now. Yeah. Well, you know, some of the, the some of the First Nations refer to uh, in their 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 origin stories and their interaction with nature is just you know much more intimate than ours. But I believe they refer to um, the bear as brother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they have a connection. They have a connection with bears. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories. Uh, you know, from from religion is um, uh, I think it's St. Patrick, right? He was the Irish. He went to Ireland to teach them about, you know, Christianity. He was speaking with a, a group that he was trying to convert, you know, and tell them that they can't be pagan. They can't worship animals. They can't have have this relationship. And they all started howling at him right. in protest. Have you heard this story? And no. and so he he cursed them and said and basically told them that uh, two of them were going to become, you know, essentially werewolves, you know, for the next, 
you know, seven years until they died. And then two more people from the clan would become werewolves. So like, there's this crazy, crazy crossover of yeah, like yeah. A, a werewolf origin story. And, and Europe is full of them. So one of the things I really loved about your book was how you weaved in the history of these creatures and and really shared some of that. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, which one was your favorite? Um, so I didn't realize how much I liked Dan Brown, just to stick that in there. I don't know if you read Dan Brown. Uh, you know, he's thought of being kind of a poppy artist, um, but I, he's brilliant. And, uh, and I saw it as an opportunity to just talk about stuff and, you know, the things that I'm interested in. My, my favorite part of the book um, is, are the parts about fairies. Uh, I've always had a fascination with fairies. I, I think they're just captivating and dangerous and silly and powerful. And, and, and so, you know, when I, uh, Newfoundland has a phenomenal fairy history. There's actually a department in their um, uh, folklore department that is strictly about fairies. There's extensive writing about them. They're, they're, they, 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 they affect the whole community and it, and it comes from their, their British roots. So I, I, I just love, I just love fairies and writing about fairies. It's kind of a weird thing for a 54 year old man to say. Um, but you know, my favorite book as a little kid was Peter Pan, which I think a lot of people love, love mm -hmm. J.M. Barry. I mean, the, the man was just, just a, a brilliant and um, yeah, so, you know, and, and obviously, you know, fairies don't need my help. Uh, fairies don't need veterinarians. You, 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 they've never appeared to me. I've been looking for them my whole life. Um, so, I mean, that, that's probably my, my, my favorite part uh, of the book. Um, you know, probably the most interesting, uh, you know, creatures in the book are, are the mermaids. Um, yeah, as so far as, as, far as about that. mermaids. Without giving away too much, tell us a little bit about where you encountered the mermaid. Yeah, so 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 following um, rescuing the the lake monster in um, in Lake Erie, uh, all the Great Lakes have lake monsters. You know, and it's written about by Native people. It's written about by uh, Samuel Champlain. You know, the the first European to come up into the Great Lakes and the founder of Quebec City. Uh, lake, lake monsters are spotted on a regular basis to the point where Lake Erie has one whose name is Bessie, kind of a tribute to Nessie in, in Scotland. And so I get, I get drawn into providing some, some aid to a lake monster at one point uh, fairly early on. And it, it leads me to, to reach out to someone uh, from my past who is still working in Newfoundland. And, um, and I end up getting asked to work at a, a mermaid conservation institute. Uh, run uh, secretively in in Newfoundland. Um, okay. So, um, and you know it, yeah. So, and and they're basically trying to better understand uh, mermaid physiology uh, and survivability. Um, you know, one of the underlying premises of this book is that we're providing a an uninhabitable planet for most species. Um, you know, whether they're uh, amphibians or you know, dodos or, or, you know, Sasquatch or chupacabras or mermaids. So. Now, how has the, how have these experiences, <clears throat> and again, your book is all creatures, weird and dangerous, and we're going to find out um, soon where folks can get a copy. But, but first I want to think about, you know, how, or ask you about 
Um, how have these experiences with these other types of creatures that we don't encounter on a day-to-day basis um, changed or informed the way that you go about your actual day-to-day veterinary practice? Yeah, I mean, you know, being around other being around other species, I think, is good for your brain and good for your, you know, your understanding of yourself. It, it makes you think more about our place in the world. Uh, hopefully, it makes you more compassionate, more more understanding, and enriches your life. So, I I talk about that with clients all the time when they're trying to understand what their cat's thinking and what their cat's doing. You know that that you know the cat isn't thinking about this, and the cat isn't you know thinking about that. People are often very upset, you know, when their cat comes to the end of, of its life. And we have to talk about putting the cat uh, to sleep. And, and I'll say, well, you know, your cat has lived its best day every day of its life. You know, your cat is not concerned that it's not going to see your, its grandson's graduation. And so I, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it does. I mean, what, one of my favorite parts of the book was um, written up about my time working in the Gladys Porter Zoo, where I was an intern. For, for five weeks. Um, it was probably the most interesting five weeks of my life uh, because I got to work on uh, cobras and hippopotamus and elephants and baboons and cranes. And they had rattlesnakes and, you know, rhinos and like everything, you know, every, if you're a kid that loves animals, like it was, it was a, every day, was like, what are we doing today? Oh my God, really? We're gonna anesthetize a hippopotamus? How do right. you do that? You know, I don't think I, I don't think I have a plan for that. You know, Doctor Jones. I, I think you mentioned like it's super stressful. Like uh, even as you're looking at a baboon that's anesthetized, like, yeah. You, you know, you're hoping it doesn't wake up, kind of in the middle of everything. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, for a I, lot of reasons, right? For the baboon's sake and for everyone else's sake. Right. Yeah. I, I live within listening distance of the Buffalo Zoo. I live, I live in a really charming neighborhood off of Delaware Park and, and I can hear the lion roar, you know, and I can hear the sea lions. And, you know, they had a, they had an a escape from the gorilla house a few years ago and my wife's school went on lockdown, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, and, and like the SWAT team in Buffalo is, is trained like, you, you, you know, if these creatures get out, there's like 10 creatures at the zoo. You have to, you know, either have a, you know, doc, my friend, Dr. Volley is either going to have to dart them very quickly or, you know, the SWAT team's going to come in and fix it. So well, yeah, it's, there's danger. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I'm going to Uganda in, in August, I got a Fulbright and wow. a, uh, in windy impenetrable forest where the last 1,063 remaining mountain gorillas live. Really? And I have wanted to see a gorilla in the wild my whole life. <clears throat> and, and I also have this moment like, like, but it's a gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, gorillas are the nicest of all the great apes. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, compared to chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans, yeah. gorillas are the most chill. And if you spend a moment to understand, you know, like, uh, I think it was Harambe. I, I personally didn't think he needed to be shot. Um, oh, yeah. Because right. what they needed to do was get the crowd all away. Because yeah. his behavior yeah. was actually protecting the little boy. Right. Right. Um, right? Like, as far yeah, as I know. There was a lot of danger around him. Horrible. It Horrible. Was protecting yeah. That little kid. And so if he had just gotten everybody away, right. I think 
he would have been like, okay, there's no problem because they're super protective of mm -hmm. young things. Right. Um, and and there have been many occasions where young children have fallen into gorilla exhibits. Right. It's been protective and caring. That would not happen in a chimp exhibit. And it has not happened in others oh. like wild dogs, you know. Uh, right. It was a young child, right. uh, I think, in Brookfield Zoo. I'm not sure if that's the right zoo, but where they fell into the wild dog exhibit. And, you know, so... Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely but I also think that we need to have a better understanding that we coexist. We aren't we don't get to decide, you know, right. we get to survive and you don't. If I right. live in the same place as you, I should learn how to navigate and create safeguards. Of course. Um, yeah. I, think, I think that, you know, I mean, in, in a community. In Uganda, three men were attacked by a lion, right? I mean, that's the reality of living with lions. Right. Baboons break into, I don't want a baboon breaking into my room. <laughs> you know, I can't even imagine. I had a vervet monkey steal my sandwich one time. And I was like, you yeah. can have anything you want. Like, right. really, you can have it all. <laughs> you know, in, in Newfoundland, in the spring, the polar bears come down following the harp seals. Yeah. And my girlfriend at the time, a couple of years before, had a polar bear just decide that it was going to rummage through the fishing village. And the polar bear walked right through her front yard. You know, and her mother, you know, just about had a meltdown, as you should. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're big and a little bit scary. And, you know, you have to respect them and you right. and you don't want to attract them. Right. Um, can, can I read about my my interaction with the gorilla? Oh, please do. Yeah, it's it's amazing that you mentioned that. So, so when I was at that zoo, um, they actually had a gorilla who had been ostracized from the group, and had been living in the hospital. And and so uh, my job was to take care of him and feed him every day. They usually gave that to the students because it was amazing. Um, so I'm just going to read a, a, about him. Um, this is when I was finishing up with my time at the Mermaid Institute and, and, and just reflecting on, on what had happened. It was comforting to return to Buffalo, to my home, family, pets, and regular life. My experience with the Mer had changed me. I recalled my time as a preceptor of the Gladys Porter Zoo in Brownsville. The zoo hospital housed a mountain gorilla named Joe, who had been ostracized from the zoo's population of about 10 gorillas. Joe had not fit in with the other gorillas for years and would cause all sorts of disturbances when returned to the group. I never witnessed this, but cringed at the thought of the damage and upset Joe could do. Of course, Joe's forced separation was unfortunate as gorillas are social creatures. In the wild, Joe would have been driven out and been left to fend for himself. In captivity, he ended up living in isolation in the hospital with the keepers, treating him almost as a pet and looking for a better habitat at another facility. Joe was gorgeous, 300 pounds plus of muscle. I worked in the room adjacent to his pen, got to feed him every day, and we bonded to some degree. When I talk with humans about animals, I often talk about empathy and the ability to rate, relate to another species. I've always felt that trying to better understand another living thing makes you a more complete person. Ah, oh, I love that. And I completely Thanks. agree with that. And so 
I, I don't, I know you have many other creatures to take care of today. Right. So um, I don't want to keep them waiting, but uh, where can folks and when can folks get a copy of All Creatures Weird and Dangerous? Yeah, it was released a month ago. Um, the publisher is in Toronto, uh, uh, Guernica Editions, and uh, they distribute throughout Ontario or throughout Canada. Uh, they distribute throughout the United States, um, and they distribute in the United Kingdom too, which is which is one of the things that led me to 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 partner with them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I would love to have a fraction of the success that uh, the great James Harriet had. Um, it would be really, it would be really great um, to 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 reestablish something like that. Uh, you know, nobody nobody writes quite like Harriet, um, and all veterinarians owe him a, a great deal. Um, you know, the book, the book is av available through a variety of sources. You know, it's available online through the, the normal places. Uh, it's available directly through the publisher's website. So if you go to Guernica, uh, you know, they sell directly uh, through uh, the independent publishing group in, in Chicago. Um, it's in a lot of local bookstores. The local book community is the, has been really great for me for readings and stocking it. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get it into bookstores uh, it's really hard as an unknown author to get book space. I don't know. You probably have a similar experience with your with your books. Um, but yeah, you should be able if you go looking for it, you should be able to find it. You know, through you know Barnes and Noble and Goodreads and right. Amazon and the and the usual spaces, or you can go directly and support uh, an independent publisher um, and go to the Guernica site and 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 circumvent the the big boxes. That's wonderful and. And I, I thank you for all the care that you give to all the creatures, whether they're weird and dangerous or ordinary. Yeah, and, and thank you for, I, I thank Marty for introducing me to your podcast. I've had a, a really good time listening to it. Uh, I don't know that I've ever listened to a podcast with such a diverse number of people. Yeah, it's been um, a, a lot of fun. And that's because we all have, you know, to me, whether you work directly with other species, whether you care about nature and how we uh, can connect with that differently. And that's a lot of what you've talked about right. is how to really reframe our perspective um, and, and think about our place in the world. And, uh, and I love what you said about learning to relate to another species makes you a more complete human. It also makes you more compassionate to other humans. And that's something that we also need more of. Absolutely. So, so thank you for listening to the show and, and thank you for being a guest on the show. And I yeah. hope there'll be an, a continuation and another, is there another book coming? You know, I, I've written a short story about a friend of mine who rescues what he thinks is a dog that he's collided with on a road in rural Louisiana, another classmate of mine. Um, but I have some other ideas for, for books. Um, I am so busy right now being a veterinarian. It's been a very stressful couple of years. If you haven't heard to be a vet, yeah. uh, we've all been working overtime. You know, people are stressed. They've got animals. Uh, staffing is a problem. It's just been, you know, like a lot of people, it's just been a hectic couple of years and it looks like we're on the way out that things are getting better. Um, but yeah, what a, what a memorable what a memorable couple of years. Um, you know, it's been great to be needed. It's been great to be busy during this, this stressful period, but um, yeah, 24 yes, seven. 
Yeah, Dr. Marty and I talked about that veterinarians actually yes. have one of the highest suicide rates, and people don't realize that. And yes, that is true. Make sure in the show notes that I put a link uh, for how people can support veterinarians. Um, oh, that's nice. Thank you. Well. So yeah, um, well, just be nice. Just be nice to everybody. That's all. Be nice and understanding to everybody. That's all. That, that's right. all you and should really say. Creature, no matter yeah. what kind they are. Yeah, whether at the grocery store or at the vet or on the road. Yeah, nice. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. What a fun interview and fascinating. And who knows, maybe the Sasquatch and Chupacabra really do exist. On the other hand, we humans are capable of imagining the unimaginable of seeing things that aren't really there and misunderstanding what is right in front of us. Next week, my guest will talk about how for all of us, the distance between reality and madness is the size of a molecule. Thanks for listening to the show. And remember, if you're liking the show, please, please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to the podcast. It somehow really does make a difference in letting other people find out about the show. And I'm really excited to bring more listeners on because I'm going to be coming to you from Uganda in just a little while, a few months. So um, go to the show on Podbean, or you can check out the show notes on my website, jenniferverdalen.com. Till next week.